You're tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. I'm here with Ron Drummond, my fellow classmate studying occupational therapy at Washington University in St. Louis. Ron, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, friend of the podcast. I just wanted to say that I've been a follower and a fan since day one. I really appreciate that, Ron. This podcast, How to OT, has been my doctoral project. It's been so fun. I've learned so much from it. And I'm honestly so excited to hear about your doctoral research project more in depth. Me and Ron have been friends throughout our whole time in the program. And really, I say this honestly, the program, I don't think I could have made it through our program without you. Likewise. Yeah. So you've been a rock for me and it's a bummer that you weren't able to present your research because I know what you've been doing is really interesting. So your project and your research study is titled Health Management and Maintenance for the Homeless, a shelter program to improve health related quality of life. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, tell me a little bit about it. So, beginning with the start of getting involved with the homeless population, I think it has to be where I begin. And so, uh, fall 2017 is when we started the program. And at the time, the then Quinn Tyminski MSOT was working to get her doctorate at St. Louis University. And... She was doing a project with a local homeless shelter in St. Louis called Biddle House Opportunity Center. She had two students from SLU who were working with her, um, providing free OT services to individuals experiencing homelessness. And she then began to recruit WashU students into her lab to then also provide free OT services to individuals experiencing homelessness. And that's kind of where I jumped on. Um, and then a little bit of the history behind where we started and where we are now. Um, we were providing services at Biddle House Opportunity Center, as I mentioned, and it was run by two different organizations in St. Louis who had to renegotiate their contract at the end of our first year. And neither one of them were willing to come up with $550,000. And so they both kind of pulled back to their respective headquarters and a new organization came over to take over um, Biddle House. Now, the one that we were most involved with is called St. Patrick's Center. It's a local nonprofit organization that's been dedicated to providing homeless services to individuals experiencing homelessness for the past 25 plus years. They saw what unique and distinct value occupational therapy had in the homeless population, what we could do, and the impact that it had on clients' lives. And so they asked us if we would be willing to come to the headquarters and continue providing occupational therapy services to the homeless population. And we then began a student-run free clinic called the Community Independence Occupational Therapy clinic and we have been up and running since November of 2018 and since then we have had hundreds of clients we've had clients ranging from those who are already housed in independent living whether that is their own house or apartment 
We also help individuals as they're transitioning into independent living. So whether they're living on the streets, abandoned buildings, or homeless shelters, um, we're able to meet them where they're at and help them get to where they need to go, whatever that is that they need. One thing I love about your lab is how it all started locally with Dr. Quinn and her doctoral research. Through her work and the incorporation of your research and also the research of other students, you have been able to demonstrate the value of OT in working with this population. Outside organizations and agencies began to notice that, and you're able to establish that student clinic. And OT's role within this population and within our community here in St. Louis is growing. Um, So I just think that's really cool. It's been extremely mind-blowing, honestly, for lack of better terms, of how willing so many organizations are to give us a chance and how we are able to advocate for so many of these partnerships in the St. Louis community. Um, it It's just inspiring, honestly, how we can start so small and as we continue to grow, things just get bigger and, and more collaborative and more interprofessional. We have MD students now from WashU coming into our clinic. Before the COVID-19 outbreak happened, we were working on a partnership with the local YMCA in downtown St. Louis. Um, And so things just continue to happen, and I don't see any of that steam getting lost from all of this that's happening. I think we just are going to continue to push through and continue to grow. I would agree wholeheartedly. One of the things that's fascinating about your role and your work in this lab and in the projects you've taken on is that you've done it all while being extremely busy. Um, I forgot to say this at the beginning, but Ron was the former president of the Washington University Student Occupational Therapy Association, and currently you're the chair of the Assembly of Student Delegates Steering Committee, um, which is an AOTA organization. Is that correct? It is, yes. So you're busy and very involved in organizations at WashU on a national level and in this lab. Um, and you've been able to balance it all. Yeah, well, I, I try to get involved in things that I think will help be vehicles for myself in the future. And getting involved in AOTA at this early on, I'm very interested in learning about policy. Um, I'm interested in learning about policy that impacts individuals experiencing homelessness as well. And so I think that starting as a young professional leader will help me be able to establish myself more in the organization, be able to be a bigger advocate for a larger population. Um, And I think things will just continue to hopefully rise from there. Um, But I did want to answer your original question about the health management and maintenance for the homeless program and kind of how that came about. After doing some research of the current homeless population um, literature, what we found is that oftentimes individuals experiencing homelessness lack the executive function skills to be able to transition into independent living, but also manage their health conditions, whether those are chronic conditions or just your everyday daily life skills. And so a little bit of the background on the homeless population and kind of the state of homelessness and mental health in our country. Um, About one in five Americans have a mental health concern, but only one in three of them receive services. In addition, about 
567,000 individuals experienced homelessness on a single night in 2019, which is a surprising 2.5% increase from 2017. Before 2017, there was probably a four or five year um, decrease in the entire state of homelessness in the United States. Now, of that 567,000 um, individuals experiencing homelessness, about 105,000 uh, individuals were experiencing chronic homelessness, which is a 17.6% increase since 2017. Those numbers to me are just like, they make me do a double take, just at how staggering they are. And this may be a, a metaphor more for people in, in St. Louis, but for example, uh, Bush Stadium, where the St. Louis Cardinals play, has a capacity of 45,000, roughly. And so more than 10 times that amount of people are homeless on a given night in our country. Well over two times the capacity of this huge baseball stadium experience chronic homelessness. I think this is a good time for you to kind of explain to me and the listeners, what really is the difference between homelessness and chronic homelessness? Sure. Um, so basically, there are two types of homelessness. There's acute homelessness, where an individual is only experiencing it for a short amount of time. Um, but chronic homelessness, in order to be considered chronically homeless, an individual must be continuously homeless for one year or have had four episodes of homelessness within three years. And in addition to that, either have a diagnosed physical disability and or mental illness. Along with that is homelessness, is it defined just as not having a, an address, not having a place to sleep? Or what more can you speak to us about that definition? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to talk a little bit about policy right now. Um, in 2009, President Obama signed into law a bill to reauthorize the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's McKinney-Vento Homeless Assistance Programs, which were first started in 1987 and established programs to provide homeless households with shelter and supportive services. Um, this bill is called the Homeless Emergency Assistance and Rapid Transition to Housing Act, or HEARTH. Basically, this bill brought about five main changes to the state of homelessness in the United States, one of which expanded the definition to homelessness to being an individual or family who likes a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. And so having this more broad term and definition of homelessness um, increases the access to homeless programs because there are often limitations how organizations and nonprofits are able to provide services and shelter to individuals experiencing homelessness based on whether or not they qualify for homelessness. Thank you for that clarification. I guess this is a good time before we dive into your project specifically. What would you say is occupational therapy's role in working with this population? So I think from my side of things, of course, there may be other practitioners that have other feelings and other things that we could be doing. I think one of the biggest things that we can do as occupational therapists is be the advocate. Much of what we would do for any other patient or client in a hospital setting or in the community, we're able to advocate for individuals to get services, to have shelter, to basically get the basic rights that they should be entitled to. But 
also, I think that we have a distinct and unique value in how we're able to provide our services, having the background in anatomy and physiology, and also having an understanding of the underlying cognitive factors that impact an individual and how they're able to participate in daily life. And so having said that, I think where we lie is being able to provide services as an individual transitions from a sheltered environment, whether that's actually in a homeless shelter, or living on the street, an abandoned building, whatever it may be, and helping them as they transition from that state to an independent living situation, whether that's permanent supportive housing, transitional supportive housing, or an apartment or house of their own. And so what we can do is work on cognitive strategies to be able to not only manage their current health conditions, which typically go untreated, undiagnosed, we can also help them get the management skills as they are preparing to be able to pay for housing, to be able to budget, um, to be able to navigate the healthcare system, be able to navigate the public transit system, which is typically how individuals experiencing homelessness get around the communities. And so one of the stats that I didn't mention is that of that 567,000 number of individuals experiencing homelessness, about two-thirds of all individuals experiencing homelessness have a mental health problem. Now, while that seems large, most of the mental illness and mental health concerns that are experienced by this population goes unreported and under-treated or not treated at all. Um, in addition to that, about one-third of the population has a substance abuse diagnosis or problem. So again, that is also typically underreported or untreated. So there's a lot OT can do. And working on this project, you kind of took OT's role and that OT background and the OT knowledge that you've been gaining throughout your education and developed a program to help people experiencing homelessness who are also struggling uh, with these, you know, comorbid conditions or substance abuse, maybe a mental health disorder. Can you talk to us what that program really looked like? Absolutely. So what we were already doing in clinic was what I mentioned earlier. We were helping individuals either transition to independent living or maintain it. So once they got into the independent living or if they were already coming in from their own apartment or house, we're making sure that they're able to maintain that. What I wanted to do is create something that we weren't currently doing in the clinic. And so I wanted to look at health and health-related quality of life. And so that was kind of where the health management and maintenance for the homeless program began. And so essentially what it was is six modules based on the literature of how occupational therapists have been providing interventions related to health-related quality of life. And those were nutrition, medication management, health hygiene, exercise, sexual health, and sleep. Why'd you choose those topics specifically? So those topics strictly came from the literature review, what people have been doing, what interventions were considered evidence-based topics to cover. And so we actually had two different trials. I just finished up the second trial right before the outbreak really surged, yeah. um, which I was fortunate about. And we made some changes from the first one. So 
talking a little bit more about the first one for an example for the nutrition module what we did is oftentimes with the population it's difficult to get buy-in for wanting to learn and adapt their health habits and routines and so we played a game of the price is right nutrition edition where we compared the prices of something like the McDonald's Big Mac to groceries at the local grocery store and kind of seeing how that money can add up going to McDonald's every single day as opposed to going to the store and buying in more surplus. Now, some of the issues with that is that if they are in a homeless shelter, they have less access to microwave stoves, you know, the kitchen, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to adapt that for the second trial. And what we ended up doing for that is we ended up making a meal plan for the individuals to be able to go back and actually cook at the homeless shelter. So we did it right in the clinic. We have a refrigerator and a microwave in the clinic. And it's, that is about all you would get in a shelter anyway. You may not even get the refrigerator. So we tried to stray away from that. We ended up making a shrimp, chicken, and sausage uh, gumbo. So these were all canned meats. We also provided containers for them and can openers that they were able to take back with them once the group was finished. So they'd always have those on hands in case they get cans. Oftentimes with donation banks, they get cans that don't have the pull tags, so they can't even open up the cans, at least through normal means. We also threw in some chicken broth, so everything was dry or canned foods that we were able to make this gumbo and microwave in our containers using our can openers. And so they had to have all of the tools that they were able to go back and actually implement this um, in a realistic way. It sounds like each of these modules had an educational component, but also a practical hands-on component, including both of those in each of your module. Mm -hmm. What kind of effect did you see in the clients that you were working with? So we did add an educational piece to each of our modules. In the beginning, we would educate them on the health topic that we were covering, and then we would try to add in some sort of intervention that they would be able to also implement into their daily lives after the fact. So for example, of the second trial in our health or sexual health module, um, what we did is we talked about the common sexually transmitted diseases and infections that are seen in the St. Louis area. And then we educated them on how they can get transmitted, how you'd um, set up a doctor's appointment, how you'd have the conversation with your sexual partner or partners, and just how you would contain and maintain yourself in order to either prevent or to manage with that. And then the second half of that was actually going online, looking up resources, and then in some cases for some of the clients, we actually... Um, set up appointments for them to either get tested or get treated based on their health concerns. And did you have like a standardized manual that you developed for each of these modules or like for each session where you're following a specific protocol or was this kind of a learn as you go type process? I guess it was a little bit of a hybrid. We did have a protocol based on Cole's eight step protocol. Um, 
but with this population, you have to be adaptable because you honestly don't never know who you're going to get. Um, we were trying to shoot for 10 participants on each of the trials, but some of the issues that we'll run into is that you don't want to tell anybody that they can't get these services. We want everybody to, so we're always open to having more. However, with the population they are oftentimes transient and they may not always come back based on the day so there's a lot of factors whether or not they're actually going to be in attendance to the clinic could be weather related it could be the time of the month oftentimes uh, individuals experiencing homelessness get government checks at the beginning of the month and so they may go and check into a hotel or motel just to get away from everything or they may go on a binger and you may not see them for a couple of weeks. And when your program is only offered for so long, that can become an issue. So we had a protocol, like I mentioned, but there wasn't necessarily a standardized protocol. We just had to kind of adapt as we went with the population and audience that we had in that given day. And if people were experiencing... Know, mental health concern or if they were just not motivated to participate in the particular activities that we had originally created that is one of the the joys about being an occupational therapist because we're able to think on the fly and be able to completely change what we had planned um, and it still be effective awesome so it sounds like you did have like a, a manual or a protocol that you developed and kind of had as a template for each of your modules but you were really focused on adapting each module to your clients needs exactly that's what we're about for occupational therapy i love it ron i want to talk a little bit now about uh, some of the outcomes of your program and maybe give you the opportunity if you'd like to share with us a clinical example of how your program led to a positive health outcome um, for one of your clients absolutely so I just ran the statistics two days ago from the second trial, so I do have those. Hot off the press. Yes. So for trial one, as I mentioned, there were six different sessions. They were each one hour long, and they included the nutrition, medication management, health hygiene, exercise, sleep, and sexual health. Now, during that trial, um, the measures that I used is a terrible name. It's called the Fantastic Lifestyle Checklist. I didn't create the name. I mean, it sounds like a pretty good name to me. <laughs> well, it's an acronym. So each one of the things is, a, you know, the letter is one of the other things. So oh, that is a very long acronym. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but basically what it does is it measures um, one's own perception of the control that they have over their health-related quality of life. And then the other measure that I used is called the New General Self-Efficacy Scale. In addition to that, before and after each one of the sessions, we would have a summative knowledge check test. So based on what they were going to be learning that day, we would have a pretest for them to see what they knew about the subject beforehand and then give them the same test after the fact. And it really just told us, one, were they paying attention? And two, did they actually learn something? So the results of trial one were that the fantastic lifestyle checklist post scores. So they were given these assessments at the beginning of the program and after 
they actually had uh, more perceived control over their health-related quality of life after the program than they did when they began. So big success there, I thought. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that's that kind of touches on another unique aspect of occupational therapy where, yes, we're focused on improving the actual quality of health of our clients, but we also want our clients to feel empowered to have that heightened sense of perception of control over their own health. Um, so that's really fascinating to me that you were able to quantify that and observe an improvement in that perception of control in your clients' lives. I think that's a fascinating finding. Yeah, I, I think that using a self-report measure can sometimes be a difficult way to measure something like that. And of course, as I would like this to continue to grow, this program, I hope that we're able to come up with more of a functional measure to help. But for now, uh, I'll take it as a win. Absolutely. And were there some other outcomes or statistics that you'd like to share with us for? Yeah. So for the new general self-efficacy scale, there was a higher report of feeling like they're able to achieve the things that their goals and whatnot. They felt more self-efficacious at the end of the program than at the beginning. However, it was not statistically significant. And then we did see a trend in the summative knowledge checks that they did, in fact, learn something or they were paying attention because the post-tests were always higher than the pre-tests. However, you could attribute that to um, it being the same test, and as long as they were halfway paying attention, they probably got at least one or two questions right from the beginning. <laughs> and so we made some modifications to the second trial um, based on the feedback that we got from trial one, and we kind of changed the structure of the program. So for the second trial, we only had four modules, but each module had two different sessions, and they lasted between an hour and a half and two hours. And that was all based on client's request. So we kind of took in the feedback that we got after trial one and tried to make it a little bit better. And so we had two sessions on nutrition, we had um, a health management module that consisted of going and making a doctor's appointment and being able to apply for different types of benefits um, and then exercise. We had a module on health hygiene that was talking more specifically about health hygiene, oral health, body health, and foot health. And then along with that was sleep. And then we had a whole module for two sessions on sexual health, one that really focused on the education part and one that really focused on the implementation part and being able to make that appointment. Um, we also added two more measures. So in, in addition to the fantastic lifestyle checklist and the new general self-efficacy scale, we added two measures from the National Institutes of Health um, one was a positive affect measure, and the other one was an emotional support measure, um, both to see how their affect changed throughout the program from the beginning uh, to after the program ended, and then how they felt that they were emotionally supported at the beginning of the program and then after the program. Um, and so then, like I said, I ran the stats just two days ago, and I was a bit surprised, but uh, there is statistical significance in all four measures 
demonstrating that all of these things were increased significantly, um, statistically significantly higher uh, at the end of the program than it was at the beginning. So you can say, backed by science now, that this program that you developed while at WashU helps people improve their quality of life. I would say that I can say that it may help increase health-related quality of life and health and that they're able to gain very crucial skills in changing and adapting their health habits and hygiene um, along with their routines based on the individualized environment that they live within, I guess. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Congratulations, Ron. Thank you. I want to ask you maybe some more personal questions now. Okay. But what's like? what have you enjoyed most about this project and this journey? I think what I've enjoyed the most was really just taking in the feedback that I got from trial one, being able to make something a little bit better for the second trial, and then building on the partnerships that we have in St. Louis and seeing how that can positively inf- impact the clients that we're providing these services to. So I didn't mention this before, but for the exercise module, um, what we did is we partnered with the local YMCA, which I'd mentioned briefly earlier, and we were able to go into the YMCA and actually have an exercise class. And then based off of that, um, what we're hoping to do in the future, and of course, with the outbreak, things got a little disrupted, but what we're hoping to do, and both organizations are on board with this, is that we want to be able to provide um, free or at least reduced cost memberships to the YMCA so they can be able to work out on their own and also just feel better about themselves. And the, the response of the clients, whenever I first mentioned uh, this being a possibility at the beginning of the program, people came back, you know, every once in every session or every couple sessions just to make sure that they didn't miss it. They were very interested in going to the YMCA. And what we would hope is that the clinic would cover the costs of the memberships based off of the university's budget for our clinic. Yeah, that sounds like it would be great. It sounds like people are excited about it too, which I'm is always a plus. Stoked. How do you think this research and work you've done during the past three years will influence your future practice as an occupational therapist? So I am very interested in many things in the future. Um, but I really want to get involved in program development, um, be able to work with the homeless population a little bit more, um, eventually as an educator, but also as a clinician, um, whenever I first start out in practice, I hope. And so I think that being able to start up this program from the ground and see success in it in the first two trials, I hope that that means that I can hopefully continue to successfully develop and run other programs in the future. I look forward to, to following that journey for you as well. And I think, I think you will. What do you hope that occupational therapy practitioners take away from your findings and what you've shared today? So one thing that I hope that all of your listeners and the practitioners listening out there take away from this is that occupational therapists belong in the homeless population. I think that we belong in the community. We belong in mental health settings. And there's so 
limited amounts of literature with the homeless population and OT right now that we have to continue to get that out there. So we're able to further demonstrate our role in order for the national organization to recognize us and our distinct value with the homeless population. I hope that people listening are inspired and are hopeful that they're able to run programs of their own for underserved populations. It doesn't necessarily have to be the homeless population. I would love to get involved in the incarcerated population. I know that you, Matt, had a field work over the summer with the incarcerated population. And I think programs like this could be run in all sorts of different populations, whether it be that population, the population that I'm working with. It could be a population with refugees. Um, and I think that with the COVID-19 outbreak, you're going to see other individuals needing these types of interventions and in addition to that, I think you're going to see a probably exponential growth over the next couple of years of the state of homelessness in the United States because of the outbreak. The way that the count works is that every January, um, cities and states will conduct uh, point-in-time counts where they'll go out and actually count all of the individuals experiencing homelessness. So, of course, they're probably going to miss some of those, but... It already happened for 2020, so I wouldn't be surprised if that number doesn't increase until 2021 from what we're experiencing now in America. I really, I agree that I think OT has a role in working uh, in the mental health field and working at a community level. And, and I think it's because we work with people holistically and practically. We need more people doing research like you that shows that OT interventions work. Um, and they improve a lot of aspects of people's lives. So thank you for that. You may know, as a friend of the podcast, that I do a segment called the Golden Nugget segment. And I want to ask you now, it's a little bit different since you're a student, but I want to ask you now, what's one thing that you've learned from this research or just during your OT education that you wish everyone knew? Uh, thank you for including me in your golden nugget segment or your new formed golden nugget segment. So I think that one thing that I learned from the research that I wish that everybody knew is that you know it is possible to get involved in these types of clinics or start up your own clinic um, within your educational settings. And I think that it is possible to help help demonstrate our value as occupational therapists to our American Occupation Therapy Association that this can be a typical form of practice being with underserved populations, in this case, specifically the homeless population. The results kind of speak for themselves. I think that everybody should know that these types of interventions are critical for the homeless population, but they're also successful. I think that it's important to continue to take into account their environments that they're in. So really adapting those interventions to um, a shelter or if they are in an abandoned building or on the streets. One of the individuals that was in our program actually lived in a tent city. And so what we had to kind of adapt is how he would be able to make meals over a uh, a campfire essentially and luckily he had 
like a, a pot and kettle and all that stuff. So he was yeah. able to make, or it said he was able to make that gumbo in that way. That's, that's fascinating. And I guess to, to close us out, um, are there any other stories that maybe were impactful to you or that you'd like to share from your research or from your work with people experiencing homelessness? Well, I often like to tell this story. Um, it's actually how I first became passionate and inspired to work in this population. So it was back in 2017 when we were at Biddle House Opportunity Center. It was before I had joined Dr. Quinn's lab, and we went to Biddle House, myself and a couple of other students, um, just to kind of observe the services that some students were providing. They're doing a group intervention. I think it was an art group. I can't quite remember that part, but the promise of it is that there's this one individual who the next day was finally getting into an apartment and at the very end of this group he announced that news and just the demeanor of this gentleman was that he was just this this big guy who you know was like the stone wall he didn't say much during the group and maybe he was thinking about that but at the very end he just thanked everybody for the services that he was getting in occupational therapy and how they helped him be able to transition out of this homeless shelter and out of this somewhat seemingly endless cycle of homelessness for a lot of individuals to finally be able to transition and have that home space for himself. The man broke down. He started to cry. He was so thankful. And that was the day that I knew that that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life in some sort of capacity. And I just felt this, this whole wave of passion and inspiration come about that I have not felt anywhere else. It sounds like a, a special moment. Um, thank you for sharing it. And it's such a great illustration of how occupational therapy can help people develop the skills that they need to successfully transition out of homelessness and to achieve their goals. Uh, so thank you so much for doing the work that you've done. And thank you for your passion and wanting to continue onward with it. I'm sure it's going to be very successful for you. To finish up, I want to ask where listeners could potentially find more information about your research and if they could contact you if they have further questions. Absolutely. First, I want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. And also thank you for what you're doing right now with students who were not able to either present at AOTA or present at scholarship day. I think what you are doing and what you're trying to foster right now is something that we need in, in this very unfortunate time in our, in our life. I don't quite have uh, the research in a publishable uh, manner at the moment, but I am currently working on the manuscript and hopefully we'll have it in a journal or something of the sort very soon. I do plan to present this at AOTA next year in San Diego, as long as it gets approved. Um, and also potentially the Education Summit, which is in St. Louis next year. Would you be willing, if people are stoked about this kind of research and want to learn more right now, could they reach out to you maybe via email? Yeah, absolutely. My email is rrdru m m o n d at w u s t l dot edu 
Well, thank you again for being the first guest in this new chapter of How to OT. And, you know, I love you, man. I love you too, Maddie B. Thank you for having me on. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. I just magically actually showed up at Matt's house today. I got a little lost, and uh, I was at his back door. <laughs> literally, literally my back door. Safely walk to school without a sound. Here we are, no one else. We walk to school all by ourselves. There's dirt on our uniforms from chasing all the ants and worms. We clean up and now it's time to learn. We clean up and now it's time to learn. Numbers, letters, learn to spell. Nouns and books and show and tell. Playtime, we will throw the ball. Back to class, through the hall. Teacher's marks are hide against the wall. See you tomorrow. <laughs> we don't notice any time pass. We don't notice anything. We sit side by side in every class. Teacher thinks that I sound funny, but she likes the way you sing. Tonight I'll dream while I'm in bed. Silly thoughts go through my head. About the bugs and alphabet When I wake tomorrow I'll bet that you and I Will walk together again I can tell that we are gonna be friends Yes, I can tell that we are gonna be friends